You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. My name is Joanne. Um, been in the neighborhood since uh, 1945. That's Joanne Harper, a lifelong resident of the Golden Gate neighborhood in North Oakland. Back in 2015, Sue Mark interviewed Joanne. Sue's lived in the area since 1992, and she's been deeply involved with a lot of local history projects. What you're listening to now is from that conversation. My dad, of course, was here because he had come with four of his friends from Texas. And uh, my dad was a welder. And of course, they were building ships for the war effort. And so they needed those, those men. The East Bay shipyards were booming. During World War II, tens of thousands of black workers migrated here. His plan was not to stay in California. His plan was to come to California and work, you know, and make lots of California money. And then he was going to go back to Texas. Joanne's mother was also from the South, Louisiana. But unlike Joanne's father, she planned to stay out West. Well, they met. And of course, my mother wanted no parts of the South (laughs) at all. And so daddy was, you know, compelled to, to remain here in California. At first, the newlyweds moved in with an older relative in West Oakland. But when it came time to buy their own home, they wanted something more family friendly. With all the nightclubs along 7th Street, West Oakland had a rowdy reputation. Golden Gate was a good fit. They liked the neighborhood. They liked the fact that we had, uh, we had grocery stores, we had um, you know, department stores. Everything was, was centrally located. The churches were centrally located, the schools. They were walkers. They could walk downtown, and oftentimes they, they did. You know, so that's what really attracted them to this area. And then later on, Mama said that she liked hearing the, the foghorns and she liked hearing the, the, the train whistles. And they, you know, they lived here until they passed. You know, this is, they, they love this area, the Golden Gate District. The way this neighborhood got its name is pretty straightforward. On a clear day, you can see the Golden Gate Bridge. You know, you just walk, go out to walk out to the water. There are a lot of really gorgeous houses around here that have been renovated in the past few years pre-war craftsman bungalows, and even some Victorians. The yards are pretty, too. Lots of flowers and fruit trees. In 2017, the real estate site Redfin listed Golden Gate as one of the quote-unquote hottest zip codes in America. But it's not just rising prices that have put this neighborhood at the forefront of a lot of conversations about gentrification in Oakland. It's this. Well, you know, the, the neighborhood is going back to what it used to be. It used to be predominantly, you know, um, Caucasian neighborhood with, with a few African-Americans in it, which, you know, was, we got along. We didn't have a problem. After being a mostly black neighborhood for about half a century, the demographics have changed drastically over the past decade or so. That's why Sue Mark interviewed Joanne Harper and a bunch of other Golden Gate residents. I've always been of the opinion that people's stories are really what brings a sense of place alive. And because the neighborhood is in this 
mode of rapid transition, which has really been going on. I think the intensity started around 2013. So it just seemed like, well, the way to go is to talk to people rather than trying to analyze the materials. I, I much prefer to hear from people directly, how is it? So in the interviews, I did not have very many questions and most of them were really about how are you navigating change and what are the significant changes you've experienced? Most of us in Oakland have been talking about displacement and gentrification for years. You get it. But these issues aren't going away. And the interviews that Sue did are really helpful for understanding the problems better and potentially seeing some solutions, too. Here's what I mean. There was a, a, a real eye-opening experience that I had, I don't know, three, four, five years ago, where... I heard a loud ruckus barking of dogs and a woman screaming early in the morning, you know, 5.30 in the morning. That's Seth Melcher. Seth and his wife Caroline moved here in 1988 when there weren't many other white folks around. And I rushed out and ran around the corner and found a, uh, a white woman with a little dog that had been all mangled and uh, in front of a, a house on Fremont Street over here where there was an African-American family and they were pulling a couple of pit bulls back into their driveway. And I helped this woman take her mangled dog and put her in the car and she went off to the pet hospital. The, the dog ended up surviving, but it was a very jarring experience. So I went and talked to her husband later that morning, how are things? checking in and he, he wanted to know what happened. And I said, well, let's go over to that house and talk to them. So we went over and, and knocked on the door of this house, people that I'd seen on the street, but I really didn't know. And I was expecting them to say, oh, we're so sorry about our dogs coming out. And you know, that was really a mistake. It won't happen again. And it was uh, quite eye-opening to me that these people felt like they were the victims of a situation. and. They had previously, you know, an hour before been visited by, I don't know, was it animal control or police or something like that. But some sort of, you know, police authority had just visited them and they were really shaken up. And we had quite a conversation that I thought was, to me, really constructive. They had grown up in that house. Their parents had been in that house. They could remember when the kids on Fremont Street would have a football game against the kids on Marshall Street. There was this whole, social connectivity and social identity. And they were feeling very threatened and fearful as their own neighborhood was being um, eroded away. They had these dogs for their own protection because they were fearful, not least among which was fearful of police authorities. They felt like these little dogs had provoked their pit bulls, which was their security system, and now they were even more vulnerable. And I realized that there's a black community and a white community that coexist without touching, except when there are unfortunate conflicts, when they crash into one another. Otherwise, they just don't touch. And I was completely blind to this whole social world that had such meaning and life and was being destroyed. And was I a part of what destroyed that or not? I don't know, but I represent it. And that's, that's, that's enough. 
and it was a, uh, a revelation for me to understand this is what gentrification is about. It's about one's own sense of security and place in the world and having a place that you call home. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm Liam O'Donoghue. Stay tuned. Going back to Joanne Harper, one of Joanne's earliest memories of the neighborhood was playing kickball at the Golden Gate Rec Center. On the way home, she would stop at the corner store to get her favorite snack. You know, I'd have my little allowance, so I would save my little money because I could walk home, you know. You could go in there with a nickel, and you could buy a big pickle, sour pickle. And then for a penny, (laughs) you bought the peppermint stick. And my mother had taught me how to, how to eat it. And then, of course, you'd get a, put a hole in the pickle, and you put the peppermint stick in it. <laughs> and you would put it in there, and you'd bite off of it. And then when you'd get down to the pickle, then you'd start eating pickle and peppermint stick. <laughs> okay, I know that sounds kind of intense, but what do you think people from back then would have thought of flaming Hot Cheetos? So don't judge. Anyway, little kids were allowed to walk around without their parents because... Everybody in the neighborhood seemed to know each other. The fact that so many local shopkeepers lived near or sometimes right above their businesses was a big part of that. You had people who lived in the neighborhood and they worked at the bakery. You know, and of course you had, you know, the family that owned the drugstores who worked, you know, in the, in the drugstores. So you had a lot of people who lived in the area who worked either in the area or near the area. As Oakland's population grew in the post-war years, it started losing that small-town vibe. After all, there's only so many neighbors that you can know on a first-name basis, right? The other big change during this era was demographic. According to census figures, the neighborhood went from 96% white in 1940 to 85% black in 1970. So from almost all white to mostly black in 30 years. Joanne remembers seeing the Irish and Italian and Portuguese American families that had been here for generations flee to the suburbs. My parents always said it was a shame that people moved out, that it seemed that as more African Americans moved into the neighborhood, people just moved out. And they, they thought it was, it was a shame, you know, that, should, that shouldn't have had anything to do with anything. But it did happen. And so for a long time, you had mostly African-Americans in in the neighborhood who hung in there. It wasn't just the white folks who left Oakland around this time. A lot of the jobs left, too. Factories shut down and either went overseas or out to the suburbs. As Oakland's tax base shrunk, public services like schools and street maintenance went downhill, too. Also, racist banking practices made it difficult or impossible for black homeowners and businesses to get loans or do repairs and, okay, you know the story. Anyway, even as the median income dropped and the building started to look scruffier, Golden Gate remained a solid black working class neighborhood. In those days, no one locked the doors. You would close your door, go downtown, go wherever shop, do whatever you want to do, come back, open your door and you, you know. And if you did lock your door, you'd throw the key under the doormat. (laughs) And everybody was doing the same thing. So everybody knew where the key was. And so we didn't have 
things like, uh, you know, break-ins or that kind of, we, we just didn't have it. Things changed drastically in the 1980s. We noticed around the 80s, maybe we better start locking up. And then, of course, you know, there's some people who say that happened because then you had the, you know, the, the um, cocaine epidemic. That changed a lot of things, changed a lot of people's lives. This episode isn't about how or why cocaine flooded into so many black communities in the 1980s. That's a different story for a different day. But the point is that crack hit Golden Gate hard, and it took a long time to recover. Now that the area is safer, there are different kinds of threats. We love our community. We want everybody to come in. But we'd like people to come in and get to know us first, get to know the community first before you start changing it, you know, because um, that may not be what people want. How should new neighbors get to know the community? Joanne recommends checking out the annual block parties and holiday potlucks that have been happening for years. These events help the longtime residents stay connected and help the newcomers plug in. Oh, and joining the online neighborhood forums isn't enough. Saying hi in person can make a big difference. Well, first of all, when you come in there, you'd like to say hello to your neighbor. That would be a starter, you know. And you'll find that we're not that different and that people pretty much want the same things, regardless to what they look like. My name is Frederick Williams. Fred Williams first came to Golden Gate around 1980. Ever since then, he's been working in the same shop, on San Pablo between 64th and 65th. That business is called Williams Low Cost Appliances. They don't have a big neon sign or anything, so if you're having trouble picturing it, this might help. For decades, they were the place that always had a row of used washing machines lined up out front on the sidewalk. Remember it now? Anyway, the shop was started by Fred's uncle, Ben Williams. Ben moved to Oakland about 20 years before Fred. Back in uh, the early 60s, 7th Street is where the black people, that was their, you know, place of hangout. So he was headed to one of the nightclubs there. He being Uncle Ben. Fred called him Pop. Cause that's where everybody went, you know, to go hang out at that time. So he was in the car with the taxi cab driver. And the taxi cab driver, you know, they got to talking where he was from, Alabama, you know, in a little small town. Uh, he told him, he said, well, I tell you this, if you stay here six months and get a job, You'll never go back. And that was the beginning of the story. The first thing that brought Ben Williams out here was the Navy. He was stationed on Treasure Island. After the Navy, he had a few other jobs, but what he really wanted was his own store. So he started fixing and selling used appliances. This business started uh, a long time ago. Now we can get the date down, but it was close to 50 years, if not more. Once he opened the shop, it became the center of his universe. Ben was there almost every day for nearly half a century. It was cheap at the time, prices, and he lived upstairs. See, so that's how he was able to do it. He had the business downstairs, he lived upstairs. Having a location right on a busy stretch of San Pablo was important because Ben wanted people to see him there every day to understand how dedicated he was. He believed that consistency was the key to trust. In a way, he was carrying on a tradition. People can come here all day long and see this place. 
This place has been here, and I still don't know the age of it, but I was told this place was here when it was a dirt road out there. And I know for a fact that it used to be cattle where we used to feed cattle because they used to have the stalls all up in this place. So I know this place has been here a long time. And it used to be a hardware store before it became a supply store. It was a hardware store. Another way that Ben built goodwill was by hiring folks from the neighborhood. If you needed some money, you could deliver washing machines and make a few extra bucks. The business model worked. They were reliable. And once you fix them, and most of them just need a belt and a pump on them. You know, in them days, a pump, I believe, was about $3. Belt was, what, a dollar and a half? So even if you sold it for $50, you still made at least $35, $40 profit. If you do that enough, then naturally your business will grow. So eventually, we, he did, he grew. He, I mean, he grew, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah, but he grew, I'm country. This connection to the country, or specifically to the South, I don't wanna skip over it, because so many black folks in Oakland are only a few generations removed from this world. Before World War II, Oakland was only about 3% black. Forty years later, around 1980, when Fred arrived, African Americans made up nearly half of Oakland's population. Sometimes people will refer to moving to a new town as making a fresh start. I'm not crazy about that expression, because you always bring your history with you. You're always connected to your roots. We, we're from the South. We grew up in Alabama. We grew up poor. I mean, bottom line, we didn't grow up wanting that. Because food and things of like that, we, we had plenty to eat. We ate off the land. Oh, my goodness. And, and I, I mean, we ate good. And we made our own food, soap, whatever it took to make it. So when you, when you only get, in his day, you don't get one pair of pants all year. Fred is talking about Ben here. One pair. Pair that you're going to go to school in, pair you're going to work in. You got old pair of old regular shoes, you probably don't wore the bottom out of them. Then you're gonna work in those. Then you got your shoes that you're gonna go to school with. One pair. So naturally when he was able to get to a point where he can buy him some clothes, and, and Mary taught him that real estate was the way. Mary was a white neighbor who became lifelong friends with Fred and Ben. She said real estate is the way. And because you know you get to rent the property out, you can make money. This message of be your own boss and own your own land. It resonated with Ben. And if you look back at his history, the world he grew up in, it's not hard to understand why. We came out of a cotton field. Can you imagine a cotton field like that, being in that hot sun and that humid sun? I mean, that's what we came out of. We came out of a cotton field, basically. We made our living picking cotton and, and got ripped off on that because it was only one man in town. Lord, no, I wish I could get his name, might come to me. Where you can go sell your cotton to. It doesn't really matter what the man's name was because this was happening all over the South. The bulk cotton buyers were exploiting the people who picked it. The buyers got rich and the farmers and sharecroppers stayed poor. And what did you do? You didn't have a choice. So he ripped off, man, I mean, come on. Man, he made a fortune and ripped people all right and left. You know, so, I mean, for Pop, he didn't want to go back to that life. And most people that was in the South that left and went into the military, they didn't go back to that life. And Pop had that work ethic. So when he came here, that's what he put in still in this business. The first few nights, I stayed with my uncle. Amazing, too. This is another story how this was all meant to be. I'm in that same house now, in that same exact room that I spent my first night in California. 
When Fred was only eight years old, his dad died in a car accident. Growing up poor, under a single mom in Alabama, he didn't have high hopes for the future. There was nothing there for me in Alabama, baby. I didn't have no dreams of college, you know, because the, 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 the way the school system was set up, it wasn't set up for us to, uh, especially black people in this day now, it wasn't set up for us to educate ourselves. It wasn't set up for us to try to prosper. It was set up us to work in those textile mills they had, making our towels and valve cloth. After getting his GED, Fred thought about following in Pop's footsteps, joining the Navy. Ben had a different proposal. Fred could come out to Oakland and work at the shop. He was thrilled. I still didn't believe I was going anywhere until Mom didn't put the ticket in my hand. Around 1980, Fred flew in an airplane for the very first time. In the South, coming to California is like another planet. We done heard so much the Golden Gate Bridge. I was just blown away when I found out it wasn't gold. I mean, our mind was totally that that bridge was made out of gold. I was blown away when my aunt brought me across the Bay Bridge and I looked and said, where's the Golden Gate Bridge at? I want to see it. And she said, there it is. And I said, that ain't gold. As you can imagine, it took Fred some time to adjust to his new surroundings. Probably the biggest thing was the amount of people. The cars. I was frightened to death of cars. San Pablo, oh my goodness. I was walking across the street like a little child, holding hand almost, looking both ways. I mean, it was a, it was a total culture shock. And I mean, scared to death. Right away, Fred started working for Ben, cleaning appliances. Here's how it went when he started the job. There was one woman, though, when I first got here. I used to have a big old afro and long hair. She called me Black Jesus. She called me Black Jesus. I had my hair down to here. And when I came across the street, naturally I told you I was scared to walk across San Pablo. They let me off across the street over there with everybody. He introduced me to everybody. And at that time, I probably had about 10, 10 employees at that time introduced me to everybody and I, he wanted to bring me across the street to meet Lorraine. So she was our reception at the time. So naturally I walked and got in the crowd and walked across the street with everybody looking and paranoid and just looking. And Lorraine saw me and she said, he the one Ben. She said, he the one. Unfortunately, being the one Ben's favorite new worker, it drew some unwanted attention. I got beat up. Got beat up by one of the employees here, got jealous. Beat me up. I was a country boy, so I didn't know what to do. I didn't know nobody. I thought I was gonna be, you know, I thought a whole lot of people were gonna beat me up. Because Papa had started at that time, I think he might have played a little bit favoritism toward me. And I think the other employees that had been here a long time, they got jealous of that. Eventually, things settled down as the other workers realized that Fred was here to stay. But outside the shop, things were getting more and more violent in the streets. Remember that this was the 1980s, the height of the crack epidemic. Fred said that even if you called the cops, they never came. But as many people were leaving Oakland out of fear, Ben was investing in it, buying properties at rock bottom prices. The real estate started paying off for it, sir. You know, because it's, it's basically self-sufficient if you get good tenants. And, and that's where he really made his money at. 
So he had a way out with real estate um, that when he had slow times here, you know, he had the real estate coming in every month and he had quite a bit of it. You know, he was smart enough to uh, buy it when it was cheap. And another thing he was smart enough to do, he bought where didn't nobody else want to buy. So he bought all the places down in West Oakland where all the drugs and everybody was shooting up one another and killing one another. He would go down there and buy. After Fred found a sweetie and got hitched, they moved into one of these properties. When me and Ruth Ann got married, my wife, we got married, we, had a, we moved into one of these places on 34th Street, uh, 116234. He paid about 34000 for it. Just out of curiosity, I looked up this address on the real estate website, Zillow. Current estimated value, 600000 The very first night we moved in that house, there were two guys running at one another, shooting at one another, right in the doorway. Boom, 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 boom. My wife freaked out. And I said, no, babe, we'll hang in here. Fred and his wife stayed in that house for years. Even though all the gunshots were nerve-wracking, they were never physically harmed by the violence on their doorstep. But in the early 1990s, the family did suffer a tragedy. One of Ben's sons died in a horrible accident. His name was Jerome. We lived together for a while. We was roommate. He passed away right across the street over there in the back in a fire. We believe that he was uh, smoking in bed. And that was something tough for Pop to get over. That was tough for him. Fred had lost his dad, and now Ben had lost a son. Ever since Fred came to California, Fred and Ben had more of a father-son relationship than an uncle-nephew relationship. After Jerome's death, their bond grew even tighter. And of course, as all fathers and sons do, Ben and Fred fought. They squabbled over big things and petty things, but looking back, Fred feels like when Ben was pushing him, he was trying to make him a better person. And that stubborn nature, that refusal to back down, maybe that's what kept Ben in business all those years. We were talking almost 50 years of appliances. Pop was just a determined man. He was determined to be a self-employed and not have to ask anybody for anything. Ben died unexpectedly at the age of 76, at home, in bed. After all those years of work, he looked to Fred like he was finally taking a much needed rest. I mean, it broke my heart, man. It still broke my heart today, probably gone. But it was comfortable looking at him laying there, so peaceful. I mean, and all of us, all the people that came in, family members, saw him, couldn't believe. Because he could be a hell raiser. And he was a tough man but he was looked at so peaceful. I've been running this for two years now. I, I didn't have a clue that he was going to leave me his business. And he loved this business. This was his baby. He loved it. What did he love so much about it? The independence. That voice you just heard was Sue Mark. All his friends, it was a meeting ground. I mean, we would sit out there and he would have friends on top of friends. They would come here and they would be talking for hours. I mean, it, I mean, people was here all day. Those were great days, too. I mean, you have people coming just to talk. And a lot of them going on. I, we took down all the bitches. We had a lot of those old soldiers, men and women, they going on. And uh, it was a lot of companies, those places like this at the time. And the business was good back then. Pop used to say it was enough business for everybody. Still is to this day. Fred is still keeping the business going, but it's not easy. 
a lot of his longtime customers are gone now for one reason or another. A lot of the older people that was here when I, when I first got here, and uh, they, they died. So in this area, most of the people who, the older people who owned them houses who paid 15,000 for them and 20,000 for them, when they died, their siblings had them. So when it was a lot of houses here that was mainly black owned too, they gone, they sold. The siblings couldn't see eye to eye, they sold. Evictions and rising rents aren't the only reasons why so many black folks have left Oakland in recent years. As people from Ben's generation pass away, a lot of family members who inherit their property are cashing out now while the market is still hot. Fred's seen it happen over and over again, and he doesn't blame people for moving on, but he does miss some of the warmth that he used to feel in the streets. The neighborhood now has truly changed tremendously. Matter of fact, it has changed even the weather here. The wind don't even blow here no more the same since they put these big old buildings up. It's colder across the street over there when it used to be nice and warm over there. It's cold over there now. Oh yeah, that woman that called and told me she, she wanted me to, uh, was I interested in selling my home? And I said, no, I'm not. That's Josephine Lee. My name is Josephine Lee. I was born and raised in Oakland, California, August the 29th, 1925. Josephine's lived in this neighborhood for more than 50 years and does not plan on leaving, something she isn't shy about telling the real estate people who contact her all the time. And she said, uh, you don't want to sell? And I said, no. I said, where would I go? And she said, well, you can go to a retirement home. And I told her, who in the hell do you think you are to tell me where I should go? I have no intention of selling my home, and if I ever do, it won't be to you. And I slammed the phone down in her face. I still get letters. Different realtors send you letters and ask if you're interested in selling. Well, the only thing they're interested in is a commission. So I just throw them in the trash can, because I have no intentions of selling this place. It's been paid for for over 35 years. I paid for this place before I retired, and I've been retired since 1985. Josephine's family has been in the East Bay ever since her dad was a cook on the Southern Pacific Railroad line that went between Oakland and New Orleans. She's lived here her whole life, and she spent her entire career working at two different military facilities, both of which are now closed. I was at Treasure Island for 27 years, and then I took over the department at Naval Air Station. That was in Alameda. I worked for the federal government for 39 years. I started as a file clerk and I wound up as a director of the military pay department. And they sent me to a lot of schools, training and everything. And I went up the ladder. Josephine and her husband bought a house in the Golden Gate District back in 1967. After she retired in the 80s, she spent a lot of her free time working with neighborhood groups to push out the drug dealers. When I retired, I decided I wasn't going to be a prisoner in my house. I was going to take my our streets back, and I became a neighborhood activist. Somebody has to step forward and do it. Now that the neighborhood is safer, Josephine's focused on other kinds of volunteer work, like promoting free jazz concerts at the Golden Gate Library. She co-founded this program, which happens every summer, and has been running it since the early 90s. 
The music that you're hearing in the background right now is from one of these performances. That's Richard Howell on tenor sax, leading a group of young musicians. The majority of the people in the neighborhood are low-income people. They can't afford to go to these nightclubs and pay 40 and $50 to go see these artists, and they can come there and see them for free. And they look forward to it every year. This will be our 25th year. Organizing these free jazz shows isn't the only way that she's trying to keep the neighborhood culture alive. She can be pretty persuasive when it comes to protecting the values that she likes to see around here. Unfortunately, one neighbor had to learn this the hard way. He started to put up the fence. He was going to put it up right on the sidewalk, you know, right adjacent to the sidewalk. I waited till he got the poles in and everything set in the concrete. Then I had code compliance come out and tell him that it had to be 13 feet back from the street. And he had to dig them up and move them back. And then I went down there and told him, my name is Mrs. Lee and I'm the one that reported you. If you bought in this neighborhood, you're gonna put up a moat around your house? That's an insult to the neighbors. I got him straightened out about that. He has since sold his property and moved to Sacramento. And speaking of fences, there's one more person from this neighborhood I want you guys to meet, Lori Storkel. Lori's been here for about 15 years, and when she moved in, instead of a fence dividing her yard from the neighbors, there was an old grapevine. It was a remnant from when there were lots of Italians around here who made backyard wine. Anyway, local kids would come back and pick fruit. She had a plum tree too. And then this happened. One day, my neighbor who lives next door happened to be in my house and the window was open. And these kids, maybe like 12, 11, were picking the grapes. And she didn't have like a dividing fence at that point. So you could still walk what she kind of considered her backyard because there were these two houses. And she said to them, hey, don't pick those grapes. And she was in my window. And I was like, oh my God, that's so not the message I want to give out. And this is what he said. The kid goes, there are grapes. Those are their grapes. Those were their grapes, but tradition didn't stop Lori's neighbor from putting up a fence. And look, it's not like there weren't fences in this neighborhood before, but there's something different about a lot of the newer ones. Here's Sue Mark again, the person who conducted all of the interviews that you've been hearing on this episode. In the 1980s, a lot of chain link and metal fences were put up. And that period of time, there was one person whose interview we didn't record, but she, she always said she felt like she was driving in a war zone because that was during the height of the crack epidemic and, and people were very fearful. Um, I think prior to that, there may have been just low fences or no fences at all. And then more recently, you can see a lot of tall wooden fences. So the chain link fences were kind of barricade, but they were porous. You could see through them. But the wooden fences have this feeling of, you know, don't come in and don't look either. Thank you so much for listening to East Bay yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue, 
If you liked this episode, I strongly recommend checking out Sue Mark's ongoing cultural research project. Commons Archive, in a nutshell, is a neighbor-driven memory bank. This project is really about collecting all of those small stories, the annotations, and the things that might seem really benign or everyday. That's what people are going to be interested in knowing about the neighborhood, because those small moments, that's what, that's what makes the culture of a place. It's not all the, the big capital H history, the important history. It's, it's really what happens every day. Sue is also involved with the upcoming 100th anniversary celebration of the Golden Gate Library. That's coming up on October 20th. If you want to check out some of Sue's Commons archive work, go on down to the Golden Gate Library. There are lots of cool ways to engage with this project. I'll be posting some great photos related to this story on social media, so don't forget to follow East Bay Yesterday. You can find all the links at eastbayyesterday.com. Also, I'm doing another presentation about the long-lost Oakland map at the California Historical Society on June 27th. So come check that out if you're interested. I will have some maps for sale. Okay, you can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on pretty much all the major podcast apps. Music for this episode came from Lee Rosevier, Zero V, and the Oaktown Jazz Workshop, featuring Richard Howell, Rafa Postel, Kazemdi George, Ian McArdle, Anthony Mills Branch, and Ellie Howell. The theme song music came from Anatech. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.